Hello, I'm Peter Lebracky Cox, and welcome to the first episode of the Pint of Science Ireland podcast. We are going to be sitting down with some of the speakers from the Science Festival taking place in pubs across Ireland as part of Pint of Science. Joining us today is Laura Whelan, who is a final year PhD candidate in Professor Jane Farrar's lab in Trinity College Dublin, researching inherited blindness. Grab a pint, it's starting. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for being on the podcast. I suppose just to get things started, you are somebody who has been quite involved in science communication, which is something we at the podcast are pretty into ourselves. And we're just wondering, so you've been involved in Pint of Science Ireland in the previous year, and you did a presentation for them last year. And you also have a really big following on social media. So could you tell us about your interest in science communication? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I did Pint of Science last year. It was really good fun, even if it was from my bedroom with like fake pub wall. That was a lot of fun. And it was also back in the day when my thesis didn't like consume all of my thoughts. So um, I really enjoyed it last year. And then, yeah, how did I get interested in the beginning? Well, if I think about it properly, I've always been interested in science communication, I think. I can remember as a child watching Brainiac with Richard Hammond. While I loved it for like the science side of things, I also thought it was really cool that it was actually somebody's job to go on television and talk about science. Like that was just really cool to me. And then when I started my PhD, I did a module on science and society with Professor Joseph Roach in the School of Education. And I learned a lot from it. And I realized that science communication is so multifaceted. So that was a great introduction. And I kind of wanted to take off from there and actually start doing something. So I applied to be a tutor on the Scholars Ireland program, which is uh, part of the Brilliant Club uh, in the UK. And basically it places PhD researchers in various schools to teach third level children in kind of a university style manner, encouraging them to pursue third level education and go to university. So that was really cool. And I feel like that was my first proper like go at doing science communication. And that was really fun. And the boys that I taught in Moyle Park College in Dundalkin were amazing. So that was really fun. I started my Instagram account PhD with Laura in December 2020 after another lockdown was announced. So I was a little bit bored and I thought, hey, you know, I can do this too. So I wanted to really give an insight into what a PhD was like, because again, I don't know about you, but I really didn't know what a PhD was like before I went and started one, (laughs) which uh, probably wasn't the best thing in the world. But I hope that accounts like mine shed a little bit of light on that. So yeah, and as well as that, I wanted to practice sharing my science publicly. So I went for it. So I think there's a lot of reasons why I'm interested in science communication. But yeah, those are the reasons I kind of went into it in the beginning. That's great. Thanks so much for that, Laura. I suppose the question that comes to my mind after hearing all that is, do you think that science communication is important in today's culture? Yeah, I definitely do. For lots of different reasons. So like, first of all, I definitely don't like the idea that sometimes science can be a little bit hidden, if you know what I mean, and that nobody knows what's going on behind the doors of a lab. (laughs) So I think it's really important to share with the public exactly what we're doing, especially if it's about people in the public, like my research, you know, which is about people with inherited blindness. So I, I don't want what we do in the lab to see far away from them at all. I want people to be able to see what we're doing and understand what we're doing. So I think it's important in that sense. And then even on a more practical sense, a lot of science is funded by the public. The public deserves to know what's being done with that money, you know? So I think on that practical level, it's really important that we make an effort to actually share what we do. 
Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think it, it, people underestimate how much of science is funded by the public. So it's, uh, it's definitely a very good point. So I suppose just to get more into your research, though, like, because I think... The good stuff. <laughs> try, yeah, try all the, all the good stuff, getting past all this. So essentially, um, you've previously compared the changes in the letter of our DNA to an embarrassing typo. This reminds me specifically of a situation that happened to one of our editors that sent a email and signed off war regards instead of warm regards. <laughs> Could you talk about the analogy and how small changes in genetic code can have big repercussions? Yeah, absolutely. So in my Pint of Science talk last year, I explained that letters, you know, like in a word or in a sentence or in a story are similar to the letters that make up our DNA code. It's actually even simpler in our DNA code because we might have 26 letters in our English alphabet, but there's four, only four letters in our DNA code. So to make working proteins, these letters come in certain sequences of threes to make what are known as amino acids, which, you know, anybody listening, you can think of that like jigsaw pieces with the protein at the end being the finished jigsaw puzzle. So if the letters in the DNA are changed, they're going to change the shape of that jigsaw piece, or they're going to you know, make the jigsaw piece look a little bit different or it won't fit where it's supposed to or it won't look right so that the jigsaw at the end won't be finished properly. And this analogy, the protein is the finished jigsaw. It's actually amazing to me that we have so, you know, so many letters of DNA in our code and that just one little change can have a big repercussion. And it's because we have a very set sequence that that DNA needs to be in. So sometimes any kind of you know, change from that or perturbation from that is going to have a huge repercussion because those little jigsaw pieces won't get made properly anymore. And I don't know about anybody else, but, you know, if you lose a jigsaw piece or you can't find the right one at the end, it's going to be very frustrating. So exactly the same. The protein won't work properly at the end. It's interesting you you, you picture them like little jigsaw puzzles. Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy, actually. Because, you know, <laughs> you're dead right. Like, you lose one of those guys, you're done. Like, that's it. That's the end of it. Yeah, that's it. There's no completed jigsaw. <laughs> and in a way, it makes it kind of incredible that it works as much as it does, you know? Like, when you're thinking about it. Because <laughs> just one has to go Absolutely. wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. When I spoke about it at Pint of Science last year, because it was only right afterwards, but my, my sister had a baby. She's a year old now. Hi, NASA, if you're listening. You know, it just amazed me that she came out this fully formed human and, and that everything went okay. Because when you study DNA, you, you just know about the little things that can go wrong, you know? Speaking of this, right? Like speaking about all the things that could go wrong and most of the time don't, just in case any of our listeners are, are freaking out right now. <laughs> yeah. So are there common typos that occur regularly in the human genome specifically? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I don't want anybody else to freak out either. The thought of just one little letter changing can be... Um quite scary, but there are definitely common typos as well. So for example, there are changes that uh, in genetics, we refer to as single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are those single letter changes that I talked about before. So maybe you're changing a G to an A in your code or a C to a T or something like that. But sometimes depending on where these changes happen, what genes they happen in, or maybe they don't happen in you know a defined area, they could be simply neutral and they might not actually cause disease in the current state that they're in so changes aren't always bad let's say these kind of changes actually you know can contribute to the way that we look different or even act different our personalities so it's funny that these kind of uh neutral changes are can actually what make us unique as well if there's anybody out there that's done ancestry testing pinpointing where people are from is actually a, a lot of the time based on those kind of common changes that are benign in a sense that's how they pinpoint exactly where you're from so 
there are specific kind of common Irish typos, let's say, and even ones that are common to certain regions in Ireland. Um, I actually have a friend from Donegal and both his parents did ancestry DNA and one was 100% West Donegal and one was 100% East Donegal. Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. So, so I, th- I think sometimes, yeah, the concept that like when we talk about genetics and genes changing is it can be these very negative connotations, but actually, yeah. you know, it is kind of also the spice of life. Absolutely. That's a good way to put it. (laughs) So you've spoken a little bit about DNA and RNA and how they create proteins. And it's those proteins that essentially affect us and change things within our body. But I was just wondering, are there other roles that DNA and RNA play that might be different from just making proteins? Yeah, for sure. So I could ramble on forever about my work on intronic DNA. Now, I suppose in a way, the roles of introns are still you know, related to making proteins, but they don't form those jigsaw pieces that I was talking about earlier. You can think of them as kind of like the bits that are important for making the jigsaw in the first place. So intronic DNA is the bits between our exons and our genes, and exons are a form of coding DNA, I guess you could say, although there are exons that don't code for DNA as well. And the introns in between make sure that a process called splicing happens properly. And splicing is a process that kind of brings together those multiples of three to make the jigsaw pieces, basically. And that DNA used to be referred to as junk DNA, um, but it's still very important because those sequences, those letters still need to be present to allow the jigsaw pieces to come together. But that's still kind of involved in the protein making process. But there are other examples that is not so involved in the protein making process, like um, some non-coding RNAs play a role in what's called gene expression, which is where you know, where in your body that certain genes are turned on and in what cells. I think a lot of the time we think the genes that we have, you know, are turned on in every single cell in our body. And that's not the case because that would take way too much energy. Um, But only certain genes are turned on in certain cells. And so there are some non-coding RNAs that are involved in in that kind of activation process. You're talking there about exons and introns. And so Mm -hmm. in my mind, the way I was thinking about it when you were talking about there was that like, following through with your puzzle analogy is that like the exons are the centerpiece of the puzzle piece Mm -hmm. and where the introns are actually the like connecting pieces that allow it to connect to form this bigger picture yeah exactly definitely um i guess it's just important to remember as well that i suppose when you have your jigsaw all together at the end the lines in between the pieces become a little harder to see so in the same idea introns are actually taken out by the time you get to making your protein at the end Mm, okay Mm -hmm. interesting but they are important i will stress the importance of introns (laughs) i actually don't know (laughs) if like leaving cert books still say that they're junk dna but i'm pretty sure my leaving cert biology book did so yeah introns are not junk (laughs) that's the hill i'll die on fair enough so Laura, there's been some terms thrown out. And I just know personally, whenever terms like DNA, RNA, introns, exons get thrown at me, sometimes they get a little bit confused as to like where they were. Like, I know I learned this in secondary school science, but that was a long time ago. (laughs) So I was just wondering, could you give us a very quick breakdown of the, the roles that those things play? Sure. Yeah. And this is even a good point, because if anybody out there is ever talking to a scientist and they're not making sense, you need to stop them to be like, okay. Not so sure about that part that you just said, because I think as scientists, we have the kind of ability to glaze over what we already know that we think is public knowledge, but it might not be. But yeah, DNA and RNA and everything in between, you know, we all have genes. We all share the same genes and share the same DNA. I think we're all 99% similar or something like that. And DNA 
is uh, in a simplified sense made up of coding DNA and non-coding DNA. And in our genes, you've got your exons, which are coding. But like I mentioned previously, there are exons that don't code. But for now, we'll just stick to them as coding DNA. And then there is non-coding DNA, which is what I'll refer to as introns. So in your gene, you've got your exons and your introns. And the way I always like to explain this is like uh, letters and words in a sentence. So your DNA is made up of letters. So are words. You can think of the words like the exons and the introns like the spaces. So when you're reading a story or reading a book, you know, the spaces are still really important. They play a role, but maybe not so much the substance of the story as, as the exons do. So your exons code and make protein and your introns are the bits in the middle that are still important to making that process happen. And then we can talk about the central dogma of biology, which is that DNA makes RNA, which makes protein. So your DNA doesn't directly become protein. There's a middleman called RNA and people might be a little bit familiar with that from the COVID-19 vaccine. So RNA is the intermediate, it's single-stranded versus your double-stranded DNA. And it's just essentially a messenger to say, hey, I need to make this protein. And so your body knows what to do then. Great. So all the memories from my secondary school education have now come flooding in. And I feel like I remember everything. I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for all those uh, kind of lead in. I know that can be frustrating, but now we're going to get into the, the nitty gritty of your work here. So how does an understanding of how genetic changes come about and present themselves relate to your work? on blindness specifically? Great question. I work on a specific form of blindness called inherited retinal disease. So your retina is a layer of cells at the back of your eye. It has lots of different cell types in there. And so we concentrate on that area. There are lots of other different types of blindness that are caused by different parts of the eye, but we focus on the retina. And it so happens that these inherited retinal diseases are what we call quite Mendelian. And that comes from our good friend, Gregor Mendel, who was a monk who did some experiments with pea plants and saw them flower in different ways and produce different things. And so uh, the retinal diseases that I study are like this too, because they pass around two families in a very obvious way. So what we can do is we can sequence the DNA of the patients who come in with these diseases. And we can look at that letter code that I was talking about earlier, and we can basically play a glorified game of spot the difference between our patient's DNA and what's called reference DNA, which represents the DNA of someone who doesn't have any disease, basically. So you spot the difference and you find the change. So it's actually very linked to to my work is these little genetic changes, because that's what I spend my day looking for. That's great. So I think a lot of the time people can view research as being very, very theoretical Mm -hmm. and like not having any real impact on the people down the line, which I think is, is, is probably a false view, but I think it's, it's centered around this concept of scientists figuring out, Oh, here's a problem. We don't know how to fix that problem, but the problem exists and we know that it's Mm -hmm. there. So I suppose what, what I'm interested in knowing is how does the research you do filter down to the people who suffer with inherited eye disease? So I feel really lucky to be doing the PhD that I'm doing because it is so patient oriented. You know, I literally get samples from patients, I sequence them and we do the diagnostic element of things. So we try and figure out the cause of what's happening. And the thing with a lot of genetic diseases is really you you need to know the cause to come up with a therapy or a treatment. And so in that sense, the research that we do in the lab in Trinity is really important because It opens up avenues for these patients for treatment. And I work in a very cool lab. Hi to all of the members of the fire lab where 
we have kind of a, a diagnostic arm of the lab and that's the project I work on, which is called Target 5000, the sequencing project. Um, and then on the other side of things, lots of members of the team work on developing really cool, new and innovative gene-based medicines um, to try and come up with treatments for these certain types of blindness. And, you know, it's hard to come up with those kind of treatments unless you know what's actually causing the problem. Besides that as well, uh, not only is treatment and trying to kind of uh, slow down the progression of the disease or something like that uh, really important, patients often get more out of genetic testing than just the open possibility of treatment because the reality is right now only one approved gene therapy um, for inherited blindness is on the market and that one's called Luxterna for individuals who have changes in a gene called RPE65. So a lot of these patients are enrolling I suppose with the hope that maybe there will be something out there for them, for their grandchildren or their own children and in that sense there can be more taken out of genetic testing it's sometimes there's solace in knowing what's causing um, what's going on in your body. And also uh, it can help with monitoring disease progression. If we know that a certain individual has this change and we've seen that change before in someone else, but they happen to be 20 years older, then we'll know how the disease is going to progress to a certain extent. Obviously, there can be modifying factors. But the research that we do in the lab is really connected to the patients. And uh, I do hope that we are providing something useful. And I hope in the future that there will be loads of more treatments. Yeah, so that was great. And I was just, you, you talked about gene therapy there. And mm -hmm. a thing that's always been interesting to me, and I've just, I've never really kind of looked it up, but like, what's the difference? Like, what makes something a gene therapy as opposed to just, say, a normal therapy that we would get from a doctor if we went in there? Yeah, so I'll, I'll use the example that I talked about earlier, which is Luxterna, the first gene therapy to be approved by the EMA and the FDA for use on individuals with a certain disease called Leber's congenital amaurosis. And it's really, really cool. It really is like out of a sci-fi movie in a way. What happens is you find these changes in the RPE65 gene in these patients. And the logical thing to say to yourself is, well, you know, how do we give them a working copy of this gene? How can we get that protein made that needs to be made? So, so what this therapy does is it packages a working copy of the gene into a virus, much like the vaccine for COVID-19, except obviously those vaccines were eliciting immune response. But in this case, we're actually delivering the whole gene, what happens is it's packaged into a virus, which is delivered into the back of the eye, and then the resulting functional protein is made because it's obviously absent in the patient. So it really is just putting a gene in there that works where there isn't one, which is really, really cool to me. I suppose the question that jumps to my mind is, how will this not create zombies? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. And I'll put my hands up first of all and say... <laughs> <laughs> I am not the gene therapy expert, but I can assure everyone that this is safe and tested and through clinical trial. <laughs> okay, cool. Great. Thank you. So we've been talking a bit about your research and I kind of want to bring it back to relate it to what we are talking about earlier with the different types of genetic issues that you get and how could some, some can be caused by like one gene mutating mm -hmm. and others can be caused by multiple genes mutating. Yeah. I wanted to know, how do you tell the difference between those two scenarios? And how do you approach thinking about interactions between genes? Yeah, this is a really brilliant question. And it's very complicated, but I'll do my best. In my work, I guess, in a way, we can see that things are quite Mendelian or monogenic in that they're caused by, you know, one disease in one family, because we can see patterns in family trees. And 
those patterns are suggestive that the disease is being caused by something that's passed on in a Mendelian fashion. So one example might be dominant disease, where perhaps an affected parent has an affected child, or one could be recessive disease, where both parents are carriers and they have an affected child. So seeing these, what are known as segregation patterns, points out to us that you know, these diseases are likely quite Mendelian. But I think the field of genetics and our field too, even though traditionally inherited retinal diseases are viewed as being only caused by, you know, one gene as opposed to multiple genes causing the disease together in one person. Uh, it's moving towards the idea that there are lots of perhaps more complex reasons uh, why these diseases are coming about. So we don't always solve or find the diagnosis for all of our patients through the techniques that we use and looking at it in that monogenic or Mendelian way. So there is a likelihood that some of the patients who we still haven't found a cause for are much more complex than we're traditionally thinking. I guess telling the difference between monogenic disease and polygenic disease is quite difficult. And really to find that a disease is polygenic, you would have to do some large scale heritability studies. So one example might be GWAS, which is a genome-wide association study. And what these studies allow is to sequence hundreds of thousands of people and check if there are any certain genes that are kind of popping up with changes in them in the individuals that have a disease, maybe like diabetes or autism, for example. But it's very, very hard actually to definitively say that a disease is polygenic. It's a bit easier to kind of say that most of the disease is caused by something monogenic for our diseases anyway. But of course, there are certainly diseases that are just polygenic. But the whole field is definitely moving towards modifiers and polygenic diseases. So in the area that I work in, there's a specific disease called Barnett-Beadle syndrome, and it's caused by changes in any of the BBS genes. And there's this idea, because these BBS genes form a big complex together, that you could maybe have multiple mutations in different genes that are coming together to kind of interrupt that whole complex, as opposed to them just being in one gene. Uh, so that might be an example of something that is a bit more polygenic. But in reality, our whole genome is influencing our outcome, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, wow. That's a big, that's a big answer. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's um, very complicated. And is, I'm definitely is. no expert um, in polygenic disease, but from people I talk to, they say it's complicated too. Great. Okay. Well, look, I think that's, that's a good place mm-hmm. to finish on, on your work. So I suppose I just really want, wanted to ask one more question, a slightly <laughs> lighter one maybe, is what are some of the misconceptions about your work that you would like to correct? I have one big one and it's my kind of genetic pet peeve (laughs) and I totally understand why it happens and I actually think it's partially bad science communication and it's that I think there is a thought out there that diseases are caused by genes as opposed to changes in genes so even the other day I saw a headline about BRCA and changes in BRCA genes cause a, a predisposition to certain types of cancer and the headline read something like the, the BRCA gene causes this, but it's, it's not the gene. It's actually changes within that gene. Everybody carries BRCA1. Everybody has two copies of BRCA1. Everybody has two copies of BRCA2. So it's not actually that individuals who have the predisposition are carrying the gene. It's that they're carrying changes in the gene because everybody carries the gene. I guess that's one misconception about genetics in general, not so much about inherited blindness, but that one always gets me. <laughs> are you, you're saying that essentially a change in the gene when you're born. So you're born with a slightly changed version of the gene and that's what causes the increased chance of cancer. Yeah, breast or ovarian cancer. And what happens with BRCA is that uh, you have one 
germline mutation and what a germline mutation is one is one that's passed down through the family and then it's the two hit hypothesis we all carry two copies of each gene except for males who have only one x chromosome but <laughs> besides that we all carry two copies of each gene and if one is damaged in some way because you've inherited it that way that's what the predisposition is because now you've only got one good copy left so if a change happens in that one good copy you have that's when cancer can manifest it's a change in the gene it's not the gene itself okay well thank you for that because i didn't know that and that is a misconception <laughs> that i anything. have now been corrected of so that's brilliant so laura listen thank you so much for spending your time and, and speaking with us today no problem thank you for all the great questions and I just, uh, I suppose I wanted to say, is there anywhere that people can follow you or find you or on the internet and get some more of this good science communication from you specifically? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so my handle for everything on the internet is just at PhDU with Laura, all one word. Um, and you can find me on Instagram or on Twitter or on TikTok. I'm less active than I used to be, but still quite active. I just have a thesis to write, you know, that, that little thing that I have to do. <laughs> and the best of luck with that. Well, that is everything for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to find out more about us or Pint of Science Ireland, follow at Pint of Science IE on Insta and Twitter and find us wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was made with the editing assistance from Anada Nagudi and Kate Finucane. Research assistance from Brian Kennedy, Daniel Giffney and Molly McCrory. Thanks to the co-directors of Pine of Science Ireland 2022, Anna Wedderburn and Ashley Gorman, as well as the SFI for funding. Finally, we would like to thank Laura Whelan for taking time to be on the episode. Pine of Science Ireland is a part of the global initiative, Pine of Science, which aims to bring the research to you, the people that fund it. We'll see you next month. This has been Peter Labarty-Cox. Stay frosty.